Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Fearless Army. Drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and when you do, ask me a question in the comments. Each week, we'll compile your best questions and answer them on air. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Wednesday. Thanks for joining me. Uh, start slamming that like button if you're watching over YouTube. Uh, if you're listening over Apple, uh, make sure you're spamming that five-star rating. Uh, I have a fantastic show planned for you today, but first I want to explain why my desk is so cluttered. Uh, Jonathan Isaacs, you know, the NBA player. Uh, he has started his own brand, Unitas, and he sent me a pair of size 12 of his signature shoe on the back of it, 2 Corinthians 4 and 9, uh, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. Love these shoes. I want to thank uh, Jonathan Isaac. I want to thank you for the 2X sweatshirt that he sent for uh, United. Look at that. And you know what's, what thrilled me about this? Is this 2X uh, fit comfortably. So uh, thank you, uh, Jonathan, for hooking us up. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. That's awesome. Uh, and I want to update you guys on if I seem a little extra energized. I noticed it myself uh, yesterday. I've never been a hardcore coffee drinker, but this is my third straight day and show sipping some first cup coffee uh, as I do the show. And I have to say, it does make me a little bit sharper. First Cup is a Christian-owned Patriot coffee company that stands for core values, family, and building community across the nation. First Cup's freshly roasted beans delivered in ground or whole bean texture, pods in bulk. Go to firstcup.com and use the promo code FEARLESS and save an additional 10% on your order. If you subscribe, save another additional 10% for the life of your subscription. I, I, I have to admit, First Cup's going to make me a regular coffee drinker. I've done three days in a row, and, and my workouts, and look, it, it may, it's a combination of things. I think that, you know, I, I've, I've gone back to one meal a day. I think this is the seventh or eighth day in a row. I've... I've reduced it all down to just one meal a day. And I've been working out, uh, you know, pretty much twice a day, try to get 30 minutes in in the morning and 20 to 30 minutes in at night before I go to bed. And man, between that and, and the first cup of coffee has me feeling like a million bucks. And it's why this show today is going to be so phenomenal. I want to, uh, I'm sorry for repeating this, but it is critically important. For those of you that are listening over Apple, 
We got spam last week with one star reviews. I need you to spam them back with five star reviews. We need like 200 people hitting that five star rating button and, and getting our rating back up to 4.9. Help me fight the algorithm. And if you're watching over YouTube, you got to hit the likes, you got to hit the subscribes, you got to hit the notifications. Support the show. It's a little small thing uh, you can do for us uh, that helps the show out. Uh, before I get into today's awesome, spectacular fire starter that's going to uh, I'm going to start a fire and then I'm probably going to fan the flames even longer than my fire starter. It's going to be terrific. Uh, sit back. You're, you're, you're going to enjoy today's show. Uh, yesterday, I hope you guys were watching when we had Dan Steiner on. Dan Steiner is the founder of Preborn. You guys know I love Preborn. You guys know that that's part of our life mission, world mission of fearless. Why is our society so ravenous to abort babies? According to a former Satanist, the demonic forces have a bloodthirst for innocence and sickly believe their blood sacrifice empowers evil. Make no mistake, we are fighting a spiritual battle as we protect the most innocent among us, babies in their mother's womb. Preborn stands on the front lines of this battle and their network of clinics are positioned in the highest abortion areas, often next to the abortion mills where unspeakable evil takes place every day. Preborn offers God's love and life to protect hurting women and precious preborn babies. And every time a baby is saved, which happens 200 times a day, good conquers evil. Please make your most generous gift to empower good and rescue precious souls. For just $28, you can sponsor an ultrasound that doubles a baby's chance at life. To donate securely, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby, or do it the Jason Whitlock way. Go to preborn.com slash fearless. That's preborn.com slash fearless. Every dollar you send, give, helps. Uh, thank you so much for supporting Preborn. Gives me, puts a pep in my step. When you do, and I got some emails this morning uh, from people that have little notes of feedback and they mentioned that they gave to Preborn, and that pretty much guarantees a response from me. Keep the emails coming, fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Whether it's about preborn or anything going on with this show, send me an email. I enjoy your feedback. It helps me shape and think about what we're doing here on Fearless. It keeps me in line. I want to be accountable to you, the audience, the viewers. Email me, fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Uh, so without further ado, <laughs> let's start the fire on today's show. Uh, an organization called the Network Contagion Research Institute released a study yesterday arguing that Middle Eastern authoritarian regimes have funneled more than $13 billion to 200 American universities and colleges. Its report is titled, The Corruption of the American Mind, How Concealed Foreign Funding of U.S. Higher Education Predicts Erosion of Democratic Values and Anti-Semitic Incidents on Campus. Barry Weiss, the former New York Times reporter turned independent truth teller, wrote a piece explaining the impact of the foreign influence on America's college campuses. She focused primarily on linking the study to the support for Hamas and Palestine in the aftermath of Hamas's deadly attack on Israeli citizens. Weiss wrote, the report finds that at least 200 American colleges and universities illegally withheld information on approximately 
$13 billion in undisclosed contributions from foreign regimes, many of which are authoritarian. Moreover, while correlation is not causation, they found that the number of reported anti-Semitic incidents on a given campus has a meaningful relationship to whether the university has received funding, disclosed or undisclosed, from regimes or entities tied to regimes in the Middle East. Weiss and the NCRI conclude that the universities receiving this money support heightened levels of intolerance towards Jews, open inquiry, and free expression. expression. <clears throat> Let me give my interpretation of the report and Weiss's follow-up piece. America, not just our academic institutions, is for sale. We have so little respect and appreciation for the sacrifices made by our forefathers and ancestors that virtually every American institution and every American individual can be bought for a price. We can and should wag our fingers at college administrators and professors for accepting money from countries, oligarchs, and sheiks who abhor American values and influence. But the reality is, we all played a role in creating a culture that made us vulnerable to foreign influence. Five years ago, I received an unwanted crash course in the kind of campus politics that spawns the opportunities for foreign investors to exercise outsized influence over our academic institutions. In 2018, my alma mater, Ball State University, joined Louisville, Kentucky, and Purdue in booting Papa John Schneider and his millions of dollars off campus. Schneider, a Ball State grad and the founder of Papa John's Pizza, found himself embroiled in a orchestrated controversy around the use of the N-word. In late 2017, Schneider criticized the NFL's handling of the Colin Kaepernick national anthem controversy. The enemies within his publicly traded pizza chain used the ginned-up racial controversy to oust Schneider as CEO of his own company. Schneider hired a public relations firm to help him navigate the fallout. Corporate media spun Papa John's complaints to shareholders about NFL commissioner Roger Goodell's mismanagement of Kaepernick as an act of racism. In a private meeting with the PR firm Papa John hired, he wondered how criticizing a white commissioner added up to anti-black racism. He compared himself to another Kentucky fast food legend from a different era. He said, Colonel Sanders called black people the N-word and Sanders never faced public outcry. The PR firm leaked Papa John's private statement. One by one, universities in Indiana and Kentucky stripped Papa John's name from buildings and offered to return the money he previously donated to them. Papa John's real crime was being a conservative Republican, someone who used his great wealth to protect the values and principles established by the nation's founding fathers. College campuses do not tolerate that. The enemies of America are using our public institutions to brainwash young people into hating the U.S. Constitution and the men who wrote it. For the better part of three years, starting in 2018, I worked relentlessly to get Papa John and his money back on Ball State's campus. 
it never happened. The truth is, American universities would rather take money from foreign countries than from self-made American billionaires like John Schneider. Papa John started his pizza business in the closet of his dad's neighborhood bar. He used money from the sale of his 1971 Camaro to open his business. He embodies what used to be the American dream. A small town entrepreneur who made a fortune and then used some of that fortune to invest in future generations. That's no longer allowed. It's not allowed because men are weak. We choose the path of no resistance. We're unwilling to sacrifice material gain for the greater good. Our enemies know this. We're all so fat and entitled that it never crosses our mind to make all the necessary sacrifices to maintain a level of freedom our ancestors created. We all have a price. We should not be surprised that our institutions do too. That's my fire starter. Now, sit back as I expand on my fire starter. So, the point of this fire starter is to alert men to the level and the kind of sacrifice that it takes to protect what we were blessed with here in America. Freedom, opportunity, prosperity, democracy, a justice system that is flawed but better than any other system around the world. There are sacrifices we have to be willing to make to protect those things. And we're not willing to make those sacrifices. And so foreign countries and our enemies see how fat, lazy, entitled, satiated, unwilling to make any sacrifices. They see that and say, you know what? For a few dollars, these Americans will turn over everything to us. We can take a few dollars and take over Hollywood and make them put out movies that denigrate the country they say they love. We can take billions of dollars and pay off their academic institutions to brainwash their kids into hating the United States of America. We can take our money and manipulate their professional sports leagues that are supposed to represent American values. And we can make them vehicles to promote anti-American sentiment. And it's really not that expensive. The price they put on themselves isn't that high because they're so fat, lazy, and entitled and so irresponsible that they're vulnerable. Men are. The, the, everything, everything that's going on on these college campuses is a reflection of how weak our enemies think American men are, and we are that weak. I'm talking about all of us. I, I want to 
if people that are talking about they're serious, they want to save the country and, you know, I know how we can save the country. Oh, we just put enough Republicans in office. We're going to save the country. No, you're not. No, you're not. And that's not a statement about the Uniparty, although it is a statement about the Uniparty. It's really a statement about the weakness of American men. And so last week, and I, I, I want to be careful here, uh, but I just want to be truthful as well. But last week, as a former contributor on this show, denigrated what we do on this show on a daily basis. And said, oh, God, we got World War Three coming and you should be talking politics and MAGA this and MAGA that. And, and it goes over their heads or maybe it doesn't go over their heads and maybe they know exactly what they're doing. Because this show and what I'm trying to explain, the conversation we're trying to explain every day here is how do you get to a point where men once again have honor and are willing to sacrifice major things in order to restore this country. Going to a voting booth is not going to restore this country. Promoting the right hashtag is not going to restore this country. Watching this show, watching any of these podcasts, isn't going to restore this country. It will only get restored when men decide to return to a righteous lifestyle. That does not mean perfection, but it means a return to a righteous lifestyle and an attempt at a righteous lifestyle. We as American men are so compromised by our irresponsible choices that we can't defend this country because we're too easily bought off and bribed. All of us. And so men who do not want to clean up their personal lives, who do not want to confess their sins, repent from their sins, turn over a new leaf and start living differently. Those men that don't want to do that can't save this country. They will be bought and paid for and bribed to do something else because they're vulnerable. If you have three and four and five baby mamas, you can't save this country. It can't happen. You're not the leader. If you're married and cheating on your wife and involved in other immoral behavior, you're not going to save this country. It will not happen. You're vulnerable. And at some point, 
Saudi Arabia, China, uh, Russia. Someone's going to offer you a check. And it won't even be a big check because it doesn't take much to buy off compromised, immoral men who value financial success above all, above everything else. The people, we're going to have to get back into the mindset, into the willingness to make the same kind of sacrifices people did in the 1850s and 60s, the same type of sacrifices that were made in World War I and World War II, when people were willing to sacrifice their lives for the values they believed this country represented. And so all of this, oh, I'm going to start a charity or a nonprofit organization or get involved with some group that's going to lead a protest here and is going to enact criminal justice reform there. That's all window dressing so you don't have to clean up your own life, so you don't have to live righteously. Look at the, oh, I, I started a group that uh, is doing criminal justice reform. Now, my whole personal life is completely out of sorts. I live in a house five times the size that it needs to be. My credit score is horrible. At some point, things could collapse on me financially that that I'll need my wife to be an equal provider, if not the dominant provider in my house. I'm going to set up a lifestyle that I can't finance and provide for single-handedly that I'm going to need my wife out here in the workforce too so that we uh, basically abandon our kids or turn our kids over to child care or someone else. You have to put yourself in position to be loyal and to be a true agent of change. If you're not willing to make any real sacrifices, hey, you know what? I'm going to have to learn to live and be happy on less money because in order for me to climb that corporate ladder, in order for me to get this job or that job or to uh, close this business deal or that business deal, I'm going to have to look the other way when that company sells out my American values, when that company starts saying, you know what, there are uh, five gay people over here that are far less qualified for this job, but because of diversity, equity, inclusion, I'm going to give them that job. You have to look the other way on that. You have to eat that in order for you to have that 8,000 square foot house or 6,000 square foot house or maybe even 4,000 square foot house instead of the 2,000 square foot house that you can afford, manage, 
and provide for your family. And kid, we was raising better kids when kids were stacked up like the Brady Bunch, three or four of them in the same bedroom. Now everybody's got their own bedroom. And we think that that's a necessity. And we think that's more important than a properly run home and family with a parent, preferably a mother, leading that home and leading the development of those children. We think money fixes all problems. And until we come up out of that mindset, nothing is going to get better here in America. And so those of you that are disappointed with last night's election results and Daniel Cameron didn't win in Louisville and this guy didn't win here and I don't know what to think. We're not going to be saved by politics. The politics won't get right until we get the family right. Until men quit thinking with their smallest head and making all decisions based on their smallest head. I, I, I know this is a problem because I lived this way. I know it's a problem because I'm still wrestling with that desire every single day. I know how it compromises my decisions. And I look out and see all of these men unwilling to make any sacrifices, unwilling to do the things commanded by us in the Bible, unwilling to do the things necessary to protect this blessing we were given from people who made the ultimate sacrifice, from people who live far more biblically sound than we do today. Those people weren't as easy to buy off. Those people were willing to ante up in a real way, join the military, give up their life. We're not willing to do that. We all want to start a hashtag, uh, start a nonprofit foundation, uh, tweet out the right thing, appear to stand for the right thing, make sure we use the right pronouns, make sure no one accuses us of being racist or sexist or homophobic. None of us really want to be like, I surrender God, I'm going to do things your way, I'm going to get my family right, I'm going to live within my means of what me as a man can provide solely so that my wife can concentrate on her actual duties, her actual role in this society. Most of us don't want to do that. We want to wag a finger at everybody else and say, they're the problem. And what they're doing is worse than what I'm doing. And so I come on this show virtually every day trying to point out and say, here's what I'm doing, here's what we're doing, and here's what we need to clean up. And so, and, and I know many of you think it's stick or it's a gimmick, but I'm just talking transparently and honestly. If, if I want to be a part of fixing things in America, 
I have to lose more weight. I have to make that sacrifice. I have to give up my gluttony. I have to consistently work out. I, you can't save the world like this. It doesn't happen. You can't be a model and, and really lead other men if you can't clean up your own house. And that's why I talk about it. And that's why I'm trying desperately to do something about it. Sometimes it goes well for a month or two, goes well for six months or so. Then I backslide a little bit. Then it goes well again. I got to clean it up. And so it sounds like I'm pointing a finger at everybody else, but I'm trying to tell you every day I come on here and I try to tell you virtually everything I'm talking about applies to me as well. The sexual lust that controls so many men and, and, and then, uh, you know, and not to cause Anthony and Virgil are going to come on and we're going to talk some more about Warren Sapp and Marshall Falk and that whole conversation uh, last week. I love those guys. But for the grace of God, I would be in the same position as them. But they can't save us either. Because, again, they didn't make the sacrifices necessary for a lot of the things they say they want. And I, I you know, I explained to them in real time, like, hey, I want to be a head coach. Or I want to be a GM. And I'm just like, well, uh, what's your personal life like? What's your baby mama situation like? What's your home life like? Have you made the sacrifices necessary to have that kind of leadership? And don't tell me about, oh, well, Bill Belichick now he's got, you know, I'm talking about when he got the job. When he first got into coaching, when he first became a head coach, what did his personal life look like then? What did he do? What sacrifices did he make? What decisions did he make? to put himself in position so that some NFL owner would see him as a leader. And if you haven't done those things, perhaps you're not going to get that opportunity. And so don't be mad because NFL owners don't want to uh, hand people with baby mama drama head coaching jobs. Ask yourself, can I get this situation under control? Can I uh, reorganize my life to where there's less chaos in it, where I can be that consistent leader that people will trust and follow behind? I could sit here and say, oh, how come, uh, you know, I'm not doing X, Y, and Z and, and compare myself to some other person who may be 75, 100 pounds lighter than me. Who may be willing, again, because all money's not good money. There's things you have to say in this media world that I'm not willing to say, and so that's not for me. And so I can't be mad or jealous of those people. And I can be critical of them, but I'm not mad or jealous. I'm not counting their money. I don't wish it was mine. That's not for me. In order for me to say the things that I want to say on this show, 
There are sacrifices I had to make. Not putting myself on a pedestal, as I've already explained, there's other things I need to clean up. But I have made some sacrifices, including leaving Los Angeles to clean up my personal life. Getting on that Stairmaster at 4 a.m. to clean up my fat life. Quit cursing so that people can hear me in context and not think I'm some idiot that has no control over his tongue and therefore has no control over his emotions and therefore has no proper understanding of this mouth here is meant to praise God, not to curse and be profane and make God look like a fool. As men, there are things we have to be willing to sacrifice if we want the world that we say we want. If we want to make America great again, we have to clean ourselves up. That's where this whole battle starts. It starts with the man in the mirror. And so when I look out and I read that story about like, man, these college campuses and professors and uh, school presidents and these universities are accepting all this money from foreign entities. And now they're, they're on their campuses. They're fomenting all this anti-American sentiment for a few million dollars or, or $13 billion. But uh, this is just the stuff we know among 200 universities. How does this happen? It happens because men are weak because men are living above their means, because men are not in position to draw a line in the sand and say, nah, we're not doing that here, homie. And you can't draw a line in the sand if everybody knows your dirt. If everybody, as soon as you draw a line in the sand and everybody says, well, oh, hold on, man, ain't you uh don't you got a side affair going on with uh, some woman uh, who's an assistant professor or secretary or aren't you in the aren't you in the closet and gay or whatever they got on you? Or don't you need this grant that this Saudi Arabia money is providing for you? Don't you need this grant to, to further your studies? Hasn't this college campus run off? any conservative that wants to spend money on this campus. And so we need this money from these foreign countries. And so you accept promoting anti-American sentiment so that whatever project you want to research or whatever raise you need to get from your university, you can get it. We're not in position to stand on our values because we're not right with God. Our actions don't line up, don't put us in position to protect this blessing that we were given. Born into the most proper, prosperous, opportunity, freest country on the planet, and we can't protect it. Some of you are so afraid of, 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 of being called pro-Trump. That you won't acknowledge and recognize 
that the, the obvious problem going on in America is that America isn't first. That this whole global citizenry agenda is antithetical to everything we believe in. And that, that this whole global citizenry promotes Marxism and communism and the alphabet mafia agenda, puts your children in jeopardy. The, 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 the things that we love about America, the things that make America great, we're allowing foreign enemies to illegalize those things, freedom of speech, Christian values. We're too easily bribed and bought off because we're too compromised. And so this show is about all men, regardless of what you've done in the past. And I've told you all, man, I've done some terrible things and I've been involved in things that embarrass God and embarrass me. And, 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 and I'm just, just stop. You can do something about it. You don't have to chase more and more money. Money will not fix your problems. It won't create happiness for you. And it dang sure will not protect America. It won't leave this country in a better position for your kids and grandkids. Those of you unwilling to get right with God, what you're basically saying is, I'm going to allow my kids and grandkids to live in a world that I won't recognize and don't respect. I'm going to leave my kids and grandkids vulnerable to all of this sexual perversion because I'm not willing to get right. I'm not willing to live a righteous life. I'm not willing to put myself in a position where I can draw a legitimate line in the sand, where I can stand on my values. You're so obsessed with how much pleasure you can squeeze out of this world for yourself that you don't care how much pain your children and their children endure so you can squeeze a little bit more pleasure out of this thing for yourself. That's a very selfish, weak mentality. That's what this show's about. And I, I, I keep uh, coming back to this theme and, and keep trying to uh, redefine and, and restate for you all what this show is about. It, it, it's calling men into repentance. It's opening men's eyes to the real decisions we have to make in order to protect something we were gifted by our ancestors and by God. I know you want to live in denial of it. I know you just, oh, if I can just get one more piece of pleasure, just give me one more month of just doing things my way. Or next year, when it gets really bad, that, that's when I'll clean up what I got to do. Because right now, it's, it's, 
It's those liberals on the college campus. It's those corrupt politicians. It's this person. It's that person. It's, it's not me. I'm doing, you know, everything right. No, you're not. Because if we were doing what was right, our politicians would look different and would act different and would protect us because they would be a reflection of us. We're getting the politics that we deserve. We're a bunch of sellouts. And so they sold out. Same thing with our university. Yeah. <laughs> Ball State. I love them. And, and they do what they do because uh, at the end of the day, Whitlock's a sellout. He's going to keep supporting us regardless. Don't matter what we do to Papa John. Don't matter what we do to Whitlock. He loves us and he'll tolerate it and he'll move on. And, and anyway, I'm so weak. I, I don't, I don't, I got to deal with these people on my campus. So I'm going to sell out regardless. Uh, that's my fire starter. That's, that's our conversation for today. Uh, Brett Favre's going to join us and uh, Anthony and Virgil are going to join us. Uh, a little bit later in the show. Uh, I want to tell you guys about uh, AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Uh, but before I do that, I want to tell you about AR AARP. Let's face the facts. The AARP doesn't represent the values of conservative American seniors. Last year, 95% of AARP's funding went to Democrats. So tell me how that represents you. It definitely doesn't. Fortunately, there's a conservative alternative, AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens proudly champions Americans' rights to free speech, religious liberty, the Second Amendment. And it's only $16 a year. That's amazing. If you're over 50 and conservative, this is pretty much a no-brainer. AMAC is the leading conservative advocacy and benefits organization and defends parents' rights to protect their children. They're also fighting to restore America's election integrity as well. AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and indoctrinate and corrupt our youth. With more than two million members nationwide, AMAC is pro-faith, pro-family, pro-freedom. But they can't do it alone. Joining gives you access to special low rates on cell phones and plans, health and wellness products, travel and lodging, vision, dental, prescription drugs. So join today. Let's send AARP a strong message that they don't represent conservative seniors. Join AMAC today at amac.us slash fearless. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash fearless. I'm a lifetime member. Come join me. This is one of these tiny little things we can do to push back. It's tiny. I'm a lifetime member. You should be a lifetime member as well. Tiny little thing. I, I spent this whole open of the show telling you about the big things we need to do getting ourselves right, this is a little tiny thing you can do. Just a tiny little step along the way of getting yourself right. Join AMAC. Support an organization that supports our values. All right, uh, hit that five-star rating on Apple. Uh, email me at fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Brett Farr, Funsley, next. It's my obligation or hate discrimination raising up your hands for freedom. Jason Whitlock, previously on Fearless. 
We, we all have, and, and we can't say, oh, you can't criticize this guy. Are you racist? It's a joke. We're crippling, guys. And that's why I talk about Deion Sanders, because he's an example of how we're crippling, lowering standards for all black men. These lowered standards that the left has set up and these black uh, puppets that they've installed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's designed to cripple black men so that we're not fit for leadership. So that we walk into every situation with an excuse. Have you been testing your skills on prize picks this football season? It's the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Prize picks is really simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. Quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of players and stat types are what make prize picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. My mom, Mama Whitlock, sent me her picks uh, for this NFL Sunday. You know, my mother loves nothing more than to turn $10 into $250. Uh, she's hopping on the C.J. Stroud bandwagon, more than 248 and a half passing yards. Uh, she's loving Lamar Jackson. She always loves Lamar Jackson. More than one and a half TDs. That's rushing and passing combined. I really like that bet. And C.D. Lamb is her only questionable pick. She's got him going over 81 and a half receiving yards. I don't know. I mean, C.D. Lamb is the only option they got in Dallas, but Dallas seems pretty desperate and stupid. Martavius Bryant, are you kidding me? But anyway, Prize Picks now offers Apple Pay for quick and easy deposits into your account this football season. Go to prizepicks.com slash fearless. See if you can beat my mom. Use my promo code fearless for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash fearless. Use my promo code fearless. Beat my mother. Prize Picks. Daily fantasy sports made easy. All right, let's roll out to Mississippi and bring in our main, main man, Brett Favre. We had him here in studio last week with Brian Erlacher, Warren Sapp, and Marshall Falk. That was terrific. Always good to hear from Brett, do a little fun slinging. Brett, I'm not sure if you've uh, heard this story, uh, but our Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, USC, a guy that many people think is going to be the number one draft pick in all of the NFL, uh, and he's once leveraged, or he's trying to leverage his status to maybe get ownership of an NFL team, uh, he executed what I'm calling the Lambo Weep. He dove into the stands after losing to Washington, I believe, and cried in his mother's arms. Uh, I think we have the video of, of the first Lambo leap or something, uh, but, or, or maybe it's the first Lambo weep. 
But uh, Brett, <laughs> I, I want to know how you dealt with emotion or what, what do you think of a guy turning to his mom and crying after a game? Well, I can't, I can't speak negatively to, to that. Um, I think doing it in, in, out in the public like that certainly opens yourself up to a lot of daggers being thrown at you. Right or wrong, that's the way society is today. I, I'll say this. I had tears many, many times after losses. It, it meant a lot to me. Um, and that's the way, I mean, I didn't particularly want to cry, but I did. And all my teammates probably, if you polled them all, would say that they saw me in tears. Now, never to my mother. Uh, but, you know, the kid's a great player. Um, I don't I don't think he's in a position to leverage himself as part owner of a team. Um, but he's a good player. Is he the best player in football right now? I think the kid from Washington, um, you know, I said after the first college football game, a uh, year, uh, game this year, the first week, that Shadour was my odds-on favorite for the Heisman. I think he's fallen some, but I think he's a really, really, really good player. But I think the kid at Washington, if anybody's leveraging anything right now, it, it should be him. Michael Penix is, is the kid at Washington. He is having a great season. It, Brett, I want to go through, because again, everybody knows about your game, the day, the day your dad died, and the emotions of that game. But it sounds like you were pretty emotional throughout your entire career after losses. Does that date back to even high school football? Yes. Yes. You know, <clears throat> as far back as I can remember, Jason, and that's hard to do right now, but four or five years old maybe, I remember my dad was a high school football coach. He was the head coach for 35 years at the high school I graduated from. So when I was able to remember, I was out there at practice every every day. Um, and when I actually played for my dad many years later, we rode home together. We rode to school together. And the talk was always football. Now, my dad was my baseball coach as well. So when we were going to baseball practice or returning from baseball practice, we talked baseball. And that's it. We didn't talk anything else. We didn't talk about school, life. We talked about sports. So I say that because it was my livelihood. It's what I knew. It's the only thing I knew. Um, so it, you can imagine how emotional I would be either with a big win or a loss. So I wore my emotions. I think people who played with me, maybe some that played against me, know that I wore my emotions on my sleeve. And uh, I was not afraid to show that. I didn't, you know, I didn't particularly walk around in public and cry. 
but I, I did wear my emotions on my sleeve. And so let's NFL regular season game. Perhaps you play poorly or the team loses it. it would you cry after that or would it usually be end of the season type deal, playoff loss that would get you that emotional? Um, I didn't cry every loss. Um, you know, if I felt like that, I mean, it just came out. Um, I, I, it's, it's hard to explain, but if I felt like I, I was the number one reason why we lost, which I always took a lot of blame personally. I, I, I expected that every time I started and stepped on that field that I was able to pull the team through for a win. So when I was responsible for the loss, it was it was detrimental to me, and I I probably would be in tears. So do you think the kid at USC, you think there'll be repercussions for this? Do you think guys in the NFL or even his teammates now will look at him any differently than they did previously? You know, it'd be easy to say yes, but being in – being a college football player many years ago and being in an NFL locker room for 20 years, guys don't care. You know, I mean, most of the guys are off in la-la land. I sat in meetings for 20 years in National Football League and looked around and just, I don't know if you're, you're like me, but say you're in an airport or uh, a, a city park or something and you're sitting there watching people I'm a people watcher. I like to imitate mannerisms, and uh, so I'm a, a very observant. And guys, as I looked around the locker room or looked in the meeting rooms, guys don't really care, you know. Uh, after about ten minutes of play installs, which would usually go about an hour, you had guys that were checked out like like with within 10 minutes so i don't think that they i think it'll be forgotten pretty quickly uh i wanted to ask you another question but we're going to move on a different topic uh colorado and, and you mentioned shadour sanders they're starting to struggle uh, a lot of celebrities hopped on board with dion and coach prime and that whole deal and Samuel L. Jackson, one of the greatest actors in Hollywood, has hopped, on, has hopped on board both feet. And now he's getting frustrated. Now that they've lost, I think, five of the last six games, Samuel L. Jackson's getting a little frustrated. He started last weekend when they lost. He tweeted out some negative things. Uh, <laughs> farts all around the OC can't call three run plays to get off the field. The DC can't get his guys to stop a baby carriage. Shiloh can barely walk, and I think he means Shadur, and is going to end up playing wheelchair football behind that old line. My rage is better served watching the villains in a good Bollywood movie. Uh, here I come. No more buff ball tonight. Samuel L. Jackson. Then he followed it up. Looked like he was just standing around watching, and he's talking about Dion. Did you see him using a mic or communicating with any other coach before the half was over? And so 
<laughs> the question I want to ask you is, did you have any celebrity fans during your playing career who would get frustrated or say anything to you if things were going poorly and, and you'd be all excited, hey, man, this big-time celebrity likes me, but now I got to deal with them complaining or texting or calling me with their complaints. Did you have any celebrity fans that kind of went sideways on you? No, no, I didn't. Not that I know of, but Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff wasn't around then, uh, thankfully. But I'll, I do have one interaction with a, a a big celebrity. We played the Giants in New York. It was a regular season game. It was not a – I mean, they're all important uh, in the big picture, but this one was just a regular game. And we won. Uh, I don't remember the score, and, and that's not important. But So I go in the locker room, and everybody's celebrating. My dad – always found his way to the locker room. So he's in the locker room and he's critiquing me. And so Kevin Costner comes up and I'm like, Oh, Hey Kevin, man, nice to meet you. And my dad was talking to someone else at that, at that time and didn't notice him come up. So my dad turns around and sees Kevin Costner and he says, Hey, the postman. And I was like, I had no idea what he was talking about. Of all the movies Kevin Costner was in, that's probably one of the least people know him by. And I'm like, Dad, the postman? I mean, you could have come up with something better than that. I, <laughs> Kevin laughed. He was very nice. He was gracious. Well, we took a picture together. Uh, he, he was uh, very engaging with not only us, but other players and uh, coaches as well. But when he left out, I was like, Dad, really? I mean, the postman? <laughs> Wasn't he in Bull Durham? Wasn't was Kevin Bull Costner Durham? the star of Bull Durham? Yeah. yeah. I mean, he could have yeah, come that, up with something Your dad being else. a baseball guy. Dances yeah. with wolves. <laughs> I mean, yes. the, the, the list goes on and on. I mean, I had to, it, I had to look on. up the postman. I'm like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to look. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to look it up myself. And now I'm really stretching my memory. It, gets, <sighs> it, it sucks getting old. And this memory is not that far back. Am I right in thinking you guys here working the cameras that are all staring at your cell phones right now? Uh, look at me. Isn't he Kevin Costner, the star of Yellowstone? Yeah. It, it is, am I right about that? Yeah, yellow, I was, and so I was going, do you watch Yellowstone? Do you enjoy that? I, I enjoyed the first season or two of I watched, it. Me and my and wife then, watched the first season, and then they, I was like, they, they can't kill anybody else. They're all gone. You know? <laughs> I couldn't. I was not a fan of Beth. I, I thought she overacted. It was a bit too much. I didn't like Beth, and so I checked out on the show. At first, I was... I was like, yeah, I like this chick. But then after a while, you're right. It's like she was a great actor. I, I liked uh, her husband. What, what's his name? Rip. Rip. Yeah. I thought he played yeah. a really good part and did it well. Yeah. I, I enjoyed but, uh, it Kevin for Costner a was season or two. The Bodyguard, which was a great movie. With Whitney Houston, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting everything. here trying to think of all the movies he's in. 
And your dad remembers the postman, huh? The postman. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. You just Come never on, know man. what. Uh, yeah, hey, I want to. I want to switch you back to a real football question. Uh, I find this very fascinating, Brett. I, I could put together an argument that AJ Brown and Tyreek Hill are the two best players in the NFL this year and should be the leading candidates uh, for MVP. They both have a chance to go over 2,000 yards receiving. And as fascinating as I find it, that two wide receivers are the best players in the NFL and maybe the leading candidates for MVP if we really analyze this, something about that doesn't seem right, that in a sport as physical as football, the position where the players can actually control the physicality. You can duck down, you know, avoid contact. It's the least physical position in football. I know Keyshawn Johnson or someone will hear that and call me crazy, but it is. I, what does it say about the NFL? Or it, it, it says something just about how much the league has changed that the best players are wide receivers, a well, dependent I, position. Jason, I think you're, you have a valid argument there that those two could be the MVP. To me, it says a lot about those two, and here's why. It's, think of baseball. A, a pitcher can control the whole game, good or bad. He could strike out everybody in the, in the game, throw a no-hitter, and the shortstop never get a ball hit to him. The second baseman never get a ball hit to him. First baseman. Other than batting, they really had no no say in the in the game. So the, the quarterback is sort of the same thing as a pitcher. He touches the ball every play. He hands off, he tosses it, he throws it, he runs. So you, people can understand why a quarterback he has to make decisions. A, a receiver, he may not get the ball thrown to him. He may be the shortstop, you know, in, in a game where the pitcher throws a no hitter. So to to and not to mention those two guys are playing exceptionally well. Everyone that they play against knows that. So. What does the defensive coordinator, what does the head coach say? We're playing Miami this week. We got to stop Tyreek Hill. We got to stop Tyreek Hill. We got to stop A.J. Brown. Whatever we do, in my 20 years, when we played a stud defensive guy, Warren Sapp, Charles Haley, uh, John Randall, just as an example, Mike Holmgren or Mike Sherman, Mike McCarthy would say, we can't let Charles Haley beat us to, to, in this game this week. And oftentimes, that player maybe, maybe didn't have many sacks or whatever, but they still controlled the defense and, and the tempo of the game because you focus all your energy to protect against that guy. But yet, how many times has Warren Sapp hit me? or nudge me or sack me almost every time. And that's the mark of a great, great player when when head coaches single them out like they do with A.J. Brown 
and Tyreek Hill, but yet they still manage him. 100, 200-yard games, multiple touchdowns. To me, that's that's MVP material, no question about it. But but uh, Joe Burrow take away his first few games where he was injured. I think he's playing like Tom Brady. He's precision decision making, precision accuracy, uh, and control in the game. So if he continues on that mark, he he could he could have a valid argument as well for it. I think the other leading candidate people are looking at is Lamar Jackson. He's they seem to have things rolling in Baltimore, and so he'll have a shot at it as well. But I, I really think one of these receivers, to me, yeah. I, I would put in pole position. We've yeah. again, it's this thing that they're about to do is like O.J. Simpson rushing for 2,000 yards in 1973. And, you know, we had never seen it, and it was the biggest deal in the world. And, and that was at a time when that was the epitome of running backs dominating football. People don't remember, like, O.J. was the highest paid player by a mile uh, in, in the National and Football League. And I think League. they played 14 games. Point. Yeah, yeah, played 14 games. But he... These running backs used to get paid. O.J. and Walter Payton were the two highest paid players in football. And then I think Fran Tarkington or something was. And, and these wide receivers, we may be coming into a time where they're dominating the NFL. And the diva wide receiver is going to be the highest paid guy in the National Football League. It's an interesting time. We're gonna, I think we're going to spend a lot of time over the next couple of years talking about the impact of wide receivers and their importance to football, their elevated importance to football, uh, because, you know, and you're right, Joe Burrow's playing really, really well. Lamar Jackson's playing well. But a lot of these other quarterbacks seem to be kind of week to week. Brett, I want to get you out here on a a lighter note, not that that was that heavy, but uh, this week, Usher Raymond, the singer, uh, gave out his Mount Rushmore uh, for running back, I mean, for R&B singers, and it was... I think Marvin Gaye, Michael Jackson, Prince, and Whitney Houston. And so yesterday, I had a conversation with Shamika Michelle, and we gave out our list of the Mount Rushmore for R&B. Mine is Ronald Isley, R. Kelly, uh, Al Green, and Marvin Gaye. And and so I wanted to get your thoughts, because I know you like R&B music. Uh, We want the Brett Favre, Mount Rushmore of R&B music. Michael Jackson. Millie Vanilli better not be on this list, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I like them, but uh, <laughs> but they're not on the list. Michael Jackson, gotcha. Stevie Wonder, Prince, and the Gap Band. Now, I like Houdini. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that was my generation. PYT would What's maybe your... be one of my favorite songs. Rock With You. Pretty Young Thing. I, that's a good song by Michael Jackson. Yeah. That's a good song. I, I Any song Michael, that, that gets you, I don't care who you are, but when PYT comes on, you can't tell me you don't get a little. Whether you're in the car or walk into a mall or whatever, you, you, it's got to get the toe tapping or what, something. Am I right, Jason? Brett? You're a thousand percent right. It does get me a little, 
you know. Yeah, whatever Brett. that is. <laughs> whatever that is. Uh, Brett, thank you. Uh, have a You're great welcome. weekend. Uh, I think uh, we'll be hearing about uh, Brett's Mount Rushmore for music and pretty young thing for quite some time. Uh, thank you. Uh, I want to tell you guys about a movie, The Blind. For years, Hollywood has been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended towards the anti-hero, the flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind, the true story of the Robertson family, is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie. You'll see there is always hope, always. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials and the triumphs and the values that have shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to stream it here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription. But if you'd rather purchase it and stream it here rather than Apple or Amazon, we wanted to make sure the opportunity was there, and it is. Act right now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robertson story on Blaze TV. Buy it today at blazetv.com slash theblind for just $19.99. That's blazetv.com slash theblind. We'll have some Tennessee harmony next. Jason Whitlock, previously on Fearless. And, and I think it's part of my calling to uplift others and to help them reach their goals and to share, because I'm not trying to do this alone, but am I creating an impression by, with these pictures, the group shots at the top of the page? I've had to think about this like, did I bring this on myself? And, and when I celebrate the people that contribute on this show and tell them how smart they are and tell them how you know, thoughtful they are, a am, I cre am I doing something that maybe I should back up off of because it tends to blow up in my face and, and perhaps I'm making people think that I am retarded, that I'm still that retarded idiot who, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who walked away from a woman because her booty wasn't big enough. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, welcome back. Time for some Tennessee Harmony. 
Anthony and Virgil uh, here with us as they are most every Wednesday. Anthony, uh, get us rolling with a prayer, please. Father God, we're thankful for today and thankful for your many blessings. Father, help us on a daily basis to best emulate your will and your way. We're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so Virgil was here in studio with us last week when the gold jacket edition of the cookout. Anthony, you were here in studio with us, but you left I had to for leave. the fireworks set <laughs> off when we taped the second part with Sap and Falk. And it was a dynamic, yes. interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. I talked about it uh, yesterday again, mm -hmm. and I, I and I, I think we all had thoughts on it. I know you watched it mm -hmm. and Virgil watched it here live. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought it was an important conversation. I'm, I, I disagreed with a lot of what Warren and, and Marshall had to say, but I, I in no way regret having the conversation and would love to have both of those guys back and continue the conversation. But we do want to analyze it because there were interesting things said. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to analyze it from a biblical perspective. And before I play any clips, the one thing I wanted to hear from both of you all was uh, their dismissal basically of Christianity. Oh, yeah. And Marshall at one point basically said, well, who wrote the Bible? <laughs> and uh, I know Virgil, as soon as the show was over, he's like, brother, how come you didn't tap me yeah. in? I wanted to pounce on them. And, and I, I wasn't, th I mean, I wasn't thinking about that. And, and so now I am going to tap you guys in because yeah. I, I, I hope that Warren and Marshall and I will, I know Warren will because, you know, I talked to Warren every week, couple, two or three times, but could we answer their questions about who wrote the Bible and, and this whole narrative? Because, you know, I should have said it in real time, but it's just like, hey, you know the people that wrote the Bible look more like us. Mm -hmm. But anyway, mm -hmm. you guys, Anthony, get us rolling and Virgil, you hop in. So uh, Paul tells Timothy uh, that all scripture is God breathed. So God actually wrote the Bible. He wrote it through his inspiration, um, through the Holy Spirit. There were 40 different men uh, spanning 1600 years, three different languages, but the men that wrote it, uh, the time period in which it was written, the languages in which it was written is inconsequential as it relates to the truth that is in the word. So at the end of the day, God wrote it. The problem that I saw that Marshall brought up, and I've heard this several times before, is for most people, you know, especially black people in the older generations, they're introduced the Bible by typically someone, a, a missionary, maybe someone white, et cetera. And so the idea comes, well, if this is who presented it to me, then this is who wrote it. And this they've put some kind of twist and tangle on has nothing to do with the origins of the text. So if you want to get down to the etym etymology, you want to get down to the history. These were people of Middle Eastern descent um, thousands of years ago. But in the end, it was written by God, inspired by God. Virgil, hop in here. Yeah, I, th I think Anthony handled it incredibly well. I just said the same thing, 40 different authors, three different languages, 1,500 years, uh, all speaking to one specific 
plan of God uh, to save his people through Christ Jesus. Uh, those folks who wrote that book uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, the third person in the Trinity looked more like me uh, than they did like any than than like anybody white. The other thing that I would add on top of that is what they were committing. Uh, both both Falk as he as he articulated you know his questioning or challenging of who wrote the book. What they were committing in, in logical terms was called the genetic fallacy. Uh, it's the it's mm-hmm. a genetic fallacy is the idea that you throw something out as untrue simply on the basis of where the information came from. Uh, so when you do that, that's a genetic fallacy. You're saying this is not true or it, or it can't be true or there must be some question of its validity on the basis of, and in their case, a white person wrote it. So that all of all of what they shared was problematic. I was I was behind I was sitting behind you when they were doing that, grinning from ear to ear like a Cheshire cat, hoping that you would tag me into that conversation. Uh, but realizing that we we definitely we definitely want to respect those men. I was so grateful that they were willing to have the conversation that they did with you. And and like you said, you and I talked about it immediately after I, I raced to you and said, man, that whole set, that whole segment needs to be chopped up and, and talked about because it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was, and I'm glad they had it because one, I want the ability to one, communicate with them and then whoever's influenced by them, it gives us an opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to put things in a, uh, maybe a more enlightened perspective or a, a, a deeper knowledge. These guys know football and many other things at a deeper level than we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's certain things that that are so popular right now in the culture that I'm glad we had the conversation because it gives us a chance to talk about it. But and we've talked about it before on this show. But I want to just hammer it again. Young people and athletes are helping them do this. That they're they're we're using race to d- disconnect us from Christianity mm-hmm. and disconnect us from God. Mm-hmm. And this genetic fallacy that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virgil's talking about, and, and, and you know, one of the things written on the walls here is like, accept the truth from wherever it comes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it does not matter. If, if the KKK came in here and stormed these doors and said, Jesus is king, all I can say is hallelujah. Yeah. I can't go, I can't say, well, it's the KKK that said it. I, I got to just accept that truth. Yeah. And, and that's where what I'm trying to explain to Marshall and Warren and to other people, that's where real men live intellectually in terms of we're ruled by truth and logic and fact, not emotion. Mm-hmm. No one can, a real, you're not going to allow a game to trick you to move away from values that liberated, freed you, served you. And, and that's why yesterday, I, I, or at some point yesterday, I, these days all run together. I just talk about like, man, we're the recipients of an incredible blessing mm-hmm. and we're blowing it off and acting like, well, <laughs> because the white man's involved, I reject this blessing. Yeah. Right. Let's say God did use your enemy to bless you because he's capable of that. Yes, he is. It's in the Bible. Absolutely. So, but that's what that's what Virgil just brought up, which was very profound. It rather than engaging the truth in the text, 
rather than engaging the story, rather than engaging the commands, uh, all of this, we would just rather throw it all away on a basis of, well, this person wrote it. Like, no matter what color it was, let's go back and look at the text. But we live in a time, Jason, of extreme skepticism, question everything. Uh, and if I can find any kind of flaw, which is what the attempt is, well, what if a white person wrote it? Then is that going to shade everything else that was written in it? That's the argument versus let's just look at what the document says. I mean, just imagine when we keep throwing these stats out and, and I know you may have to move forward, but when we keep throwing these lines out, 40 different men, most of which who did not have direct knowledge with one another over 1600 years, which means this person started writing, died, generations come down the line before this one picks up and writes even more. Three different languages. We have different language barriers. There were language barriers, but tells a consistent story about what God is doing to save mankind, how he does it, talking about the same Jesus. Like that in and of itself is miraculous. Mm -hmm. Yet we're going to question the book because of what we perceive the author was the race of the author. That, that's that's where I'm saying we, we haven't even engaged the text yet. We're just dealing with right. what we assume about the authors. It, it it makes us vulnerable to very easy manipulation. Yes. And so th they can sit. Let's take the Bible out of it again, because mm -hmm. what goes well, uh, exercise, that's a white deal. <laughs> and so you should be against it because it's again, it's, yeah. it's tricking you into a death culture and tricking you into a mindset. And I'm, I am going to move on because I want to, why this is important in, in this mind game that's being played and, and these guys not realizing it. But when, I, when we kept circling back to creating opportunities, and victim mentality. It's like when you understand the truth spelled out in the Bible, you can't be a victim. Someone died on a cross, mm -hmm. not someone, Jesus Christ died on a cross mm -hmm. for your victory. That is written. Yeah. That is fact. And so I listen to the, they don't understand that the reason why they think someone has to give them something and they're not capable of creating something is because they've been detached from the truth, which is the words written in that Bible, those God-breathed words. And so I play uh, these clips back to back, and, and we will address them in, in totality. But these clips back to back where I'm, I'm arguing with them about creating opportunities and you know what we're capable of doing on our own, Let, let's play the clips has to take over in real life, and it's about creating opportunities for yourself. There's no opportunities. You ain't creating none. Chase, you, I done created opportunities my whole life. I, 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 guys, I just, I'm t I came Jason, from nothing. I, I, I graduated no, college no, no, with a 2.3. I understand 2. what you're I wrote every newspaper in the college begging for a job, and they all told me, except for one, that, that they would <laughs> give me a chance at $5 an hour. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, great. Watch what I do with that $5 an hour job. No, 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 no. 
They gave you the job, though. They gave you the job. Yeah, they gave it. The they gave you the job. They gave you the job. I created it, though. No, you didn't. No, no, no. They gave it to you. <laughs> no, you paid for it, and they gave it to you. If you created the job, guess what? You'd have been working for free, and they would have saw your value, and they'd offer you five. I basically was working. No, no, no. Five. They gave you five. No, no, no. They gave they you a job. They gave you five dollars to do the job. If you if if you'd have went there, and and then I'm gonna show you my value, and then they say, you know what? After two months, three months, a year, now I'm gonna pay you five dollars an hour. That's creating a job. You took the opportunity. The space was open. Oh, people should start uh, all kinds of businesses. I understand that, but you're just you're, you're talking Again, about. Again, if you go to our communities, what, what everybody comes and starts businesses in our communities of and course. takes our money. Koreans, Asians. Yeah, everybody. because the bank gave them a loan to, to buy that corner that they wouldn't uh, give us to all, buy that on the Who corner. gave my father the loan? You tell me. Nobody. Are you sure? As it relates to the Knothole Barbershop, yeah, yes. Barbershop, yes. His first business, nobody gave him money. Him and three of his buddies uh, started the Knothole. I mean, it didn't take a whole so lot. So somebody already owned this building and they turned it into a barbershop, right? No, they, they probably rented oh, the building. Scheme, they man. probably rented the building. You're telling the story. So the I building was black owned? Oh, yeah, I, I don't know who owned it, but they rented the building. It. I'm just saying. Some, maybe, maybe somebody maybe gave him an opportunity. Maybe some, exactly. Somebody gave him an opportunity, dog. You just don't manifest something out of air and it's a physical place that you that you go to. It just didn't come out of air. Guys, I, I, it comes down to who do you believe in, yourself or somebody else? Oh, that's the only thing I bet on is sure things in myself because the only thing I'm sure of is my abilities. Virgil, <laughs> your thoughts. First of all, I, I love this conversation. In fact, if you, you notice in the video, I'm actually uh, behind you, uh, behind your right shoulder, just smiling and grinning and laughing. This reminds me, this conversation reminds me of just barbershop on Saturday morning. You know, you get up early to go to the barbershop on Saturday morning and all the, all the old heads are in there hollering and griping at each other and going back and forth about specific issues. Some of it's substantive. Some of it are, is, is an example of people talking past one another, but but all of it in an effort to try to push forward a point. I, I think the point that you were raising in this whole process, Jason, you can argue, were you given an opportunity or did you take the opportunity? I, I, I would I would argue from a vantage point of view, your, your your preparation opened the door for an opportunity to be, to, to be offered. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you had to, there was some initiative on your part that took place in order for any doors to be open. One of the things that you said, and it's not in this clip, but it was during the course of the conversation and, and it stuck with me, Jason. It was when you said, we've got to begin thinking about the entry point. At the time, I think you were talking about uh, the issues related to, co to coaching because the, uh, the, the deal was whether or not enough black coaches. And so you're, you're, you said, I want to I want to start at the entry point. The entry point for a coach is a, a college assistant, right? The, the college coach assistant, coaching assistant. And, and you, were, you were trying to assistant. push them. graduate assistant, graduate assistant. Gotcha. So so yep. that's the point. That was the entry point that you were saying we need to kind of take a look at. I think in this conversation, you're pressing the same point. What you're trying to get those men to understand is the entry point is not you sitting around waiting for the white man or someone else to provide an opportunity for you. The entry point is you were born in the greatest country in the world. It's called the land of opportunity and that you've got to get up off of your butt. The entry point was you were born here. You were raised here. You can make it get up and go make something of yourself. 
That was the vantage point you were looking from. The framework they were looking at it from was, well, somebody's got to do something. Some and 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 the the the, the part about that that was that was troubling or problem some pro, or, or problematic was they didn't they don't operate that way. They, these guys are in the, the the greatest meritocracy in the world, which is the NFL. And you 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 get there because of your hard work, you you know all the effort you put into it, and and they, they they're acting like meritocracy for for me, but not for thee. They should be preaching that same message. It's merit based, America, land of opportunity for sure, but it's merit based. Get up off your butt, go get it, make it happen. You can bet on you. And eventually, during the course of the conversation, uh, Warren kind of landed landed at that place. Last thing I'll say is. Uh, the, the quote that that, uh, that that I thought about as it relates to this particular issue was a quote from uh, Booker T. Washington. He hangs behind you there. He said this, success waits patiently for anyone who has the determination and the strength to seize it. It's imperative that we get up and go seize it. And, and I think that's what you meant by by taking opportunities. I think that the, the, the point was missed in that they were starting at a different entry point and their entry point was one where someone's got to give me something. Someone's got to open a door for something. And, and that's where I think maybe things got crossed ways and, and mixed up. Before you hop in, Anthony, I, the, the reality is if I had been thinking clearly at the time, I, I would have told Warren or whoever made the point like, uh, my first writing job was at the Ball State Daily News my senior year. I got paid nothing. I didn't get credit hours for working at the Ball State Daily News. It was something that I knew I had to do if I wanted to get a job. I had to go work for the student newspaper uh, uh, and do that for free so that I could be qualified potentially to get a job. Even though I did that, I still wasn't qualified for a full-time job. No newspaper would give me one. And so, and then I had to swallow my pride as the first person from my family to graduate college. You don't dream about a $5 an hour job when you're graduating from college. That was me saying, you know what? This is what I earned. $5, that's all I'm good enough for because I played football, I drank beer, I joked around in college, and one year, one year I worked for the student paper, but all of my peers, they did internships, they wrote uh, for the student paper for two and three and four years. And so they were qualified for full-time employment when they left college. I wasn't, accepted that, and was willing to take basically the graduate assistant job in sports writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't weighed down with a bunch of responsibility, kids or anything. I could take that $5 an hour job, go live in a one-bedroom efficiency, and so, I did create the opportunity by working at the Ball State Daily News and by humbling myself to say, my roommate for five years in college, I think this dude walked out of college. Uh, I know he walked out with enough to get him a brand new car that we were all jealous of. And I think maybe making 60,000 bucks a year, Todd Fennell. Oh, wow. This is in 19, some, something very good because he put in a lot more work and he was more qualified and he was in an industry that, that paid better than what I was walking into. And so, anyway, I just wanted to add, <laughs> Anthony. I see it, I see what, uh, kind of like what Virgil said, I like how he framed it. He helped to, to best frame what I'm about to say. 
in the barbershop. We're talking at, we're talking across, we're talking beyond one another. I think what Marshall and Warren were arguing in terms of an opportunity being given is even looking at your story, your narrative that you gave out, um, you know, the, the job at Ball State, the, the free one that you just talked about now, there were other writers. There were other writers that were there. They gave you the opportunity to say, hey, you can do it for free. You took advantage of that opportunity. Now, where I see, which is what Virgil brings up, I see a lot of us wanting the $60,000 a job first versus taking this opportunity. But I, at the same time, I have to be, I, I look at my story. I was telling uh, my wife the other day when we were watching this, I could tell my story one of two ways. I could look at it as I didn't have a father who was a preacher. I didn't come from a lineage of preachers. I didn't have a church that, you know, the minister before, hey, I'm going to hand this over to you. Like I had to work through the mud so I could look at it and say, man, I have created these opportunities. But I could also look back at my same story and say, wait a minute. Had he not given me an opportunity to speak at 11 years old, had he not fostered the gift that he saw that I had and thus gave me an opportunity here, I would not be where I am today. So there were opportunities that were given. The difference, though, is most times we don't want to take the five dollar an hour job. We don't want to take the free work that leads to greater opportunities. But at the same time, uh, when I was watching, I was I was thinking to myself saying, yeah, but you were given an opportunity. Your dad was given an opportunity. He was given an opportunity, be it the loan, you know, for one of those businesses. You were mentioning the other day and I wanted to ask you about it. The what's his name? Jimmy uh, Slim Carruthers. Slim Carruthers. Slim Carruthers. Did was that like a loan that he gave your dad or a he wanted to get out of the bar business. He's making so much money in mm -hmm. real estate. I think his wife wanted him out of the bar business. Mm -hmm. They had so many other things going. And he and my father were such good friends. I believe the nature, because my father didn't have a dime at this time. Okay. I believe the nature of their original business deal for the Masterpiece Lounge was, as you make money, you pay me for selling you the bar. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, maybe there was a small amount of money. Mm -hmm. Again, my father was a hustler, gambler. And so maybe there was a $10,000 initial payment or whatever, but it took him several years to pay back or to pay off getting that bar from, from Slim Carruthers. Mm -hmm. But, and if I really think about like Jimmy's J Bar J, mm -hmm. I do believe there was a small business loan that he got he qualified for because of his service in the military and the army. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah. me and my brother would have to sure. compare notes to, to, to go over all of this. But, but I, 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 I just, I want to connect all of this biblically in terms of why we do Tennessee Harmony, why we do this show, yeah. and why it's important that we continue to have these conversations with these guys. Because to me, it was clear as day that uh, Marshall doesn't believe in God <laughs> and that Warren is skeptical sure, or sure. a very soft believer. Yeah. And, and what I'm trying to explain to them 
is they're short-circuiting their progress and understanding of the world and limiting their success. And I know they've had a lot of success, but that's primarily based on football. If they had the right biblical understanding of the world, and this is important for the audience, just don't limit it. It's important for me. It's important for Anthony. Everybody sitting in there, everybody can hear my voice. If you have a biblical worldview, your first understanding is God, Jesus Christ gave you this opportunity in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so your first emotion should be gratitude. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, thank God. Thank you, thank Mm -hmm. you, thank you. Mm -hmm. Not entitlement. Mm -hmm. I'm owed something. No, you're not. Mm -hmm. That was someone else bought you this opportunity on a cross. And so once you wake up with a mindset of gratitude, and, and know that someone gave you all these different opportunities every day. You have a new opportunity. Every day that he wakes you up, you have a new opportunity to do something great. Not, he does not want you, and your mindset shouldn't be, well, uh, my ancestors were mistreated, and so I'm owed something, or someone uh, spoke poorly to me or mistreated me when I was in junior high or high school, I'm owed something. Mm -hmm. When you have a biblical understanding, the slights that you dealt with and whatever unfairness you dealt with seem so tiny in comparison to what he did for you that you just forget about all that. And you're so overwhelmed with gratitude and like, oh, my God, I got this opportunity, blah, 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 that that these feelings of entitlement disappear. And then you wake up every day. Man, I got to look at this amazing opportunity. Mm -hmm. I can go out here and touch people. I can go out here and build a business. I can go out here and do all this. That's what we're trying to communicate with this show and in particularly with Tennessee Harmony. Get your mind, get your worldview in line with a vision and an emotion of gratitude rather than entitlement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying. And we got four minutes left. <laughs> uh, Virgil, take two. Anthony, take two. And we'll, we'll be out of here. Yeah, I, I, I think you're spot on. I think that at the end of the day, that's that's the ultimate message, regardless of, of, of who thinks, well, I had the opportunity or I took the opportunity or what have you. That's the bigger issue. It's it's a, it's coming from a from a disposition, a spirit of, of gratitude. Man, I wake up every day recognizing that I am a sinful human being in need of a savior. I recognize every day that that scripture says that the wages of sin is death. So if I really want to think about what I'm owed I'm owed to be, you know, taken off of the earth. Uh, God, God would have every right and he would be justified to, to, to kill me the night before I ever woke up and to send me in, in, to hell eternally. That's what I'm owed. The reality is God's grace allowed me to open my eyes to see another sunny day uh, that, that Christ came and lived the perfect life that I could not live and made a sacrifice that I could not repay so that I could have eternal life. I should be the most, the, the person filled with the greatest amount of gratitude for the life that I lead, for the fact that I can get out and engage people on a day-to-day basis that, that any slight given me does, Jason, seem small in comparison. And, and as a result of that, my life is lived totally 
you know, differently. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I definitely live in a space of tremendous gratitude for the grace that God has given me and continues to give me on a day-to-day basis. I come from a background of, of my, my dad was a, a, had a sixth grade education, uh, did, not, uh, did not have a formalized education. Uh, you know, worked his butt off and gave that trait to me. My dad, you know, were he alive today, even in his old age, could outwork me any day of the week, even at, even at my, my greatest strength. But he never complained. He, he just worked and took care of me and my mom and uh, my brother. And, and, and that was passed along to me. So strong work ethic, a focus on, on the good things. Uh, I don't spend time worrying about who did what to me. Uh, I worry more about what I can do to honor God in my life. And again, don't I don't say that by any stretch to sound perfect. I'm far from perfect. I could, I, it, we, if you walk around with me yesterday, you see how imperfect I am. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to pretend uh, by any stretch of the imagination I'm, I'm perfect, but I, I am grateful. Uh, and I think that's the heartbeat of what you're wanting to, to share with others. It's the reason why I look forward to opportunities to be on this platform with you. And, uh, and of course, anytime I could share it with Anthony as well. Virgil, I know you got to take off and go take care of some business. Anthony, wrap us up here. Take as much time or as little time as you want. In the end, our success and our progression is not predicated upon an opportunity that someone refuses to give. I think you would say it's that no that somebody gives you. Um, We are, and I love how you framed it, we've been given the opportunity because of the death of Christ on the cross to pursue, to be active, to disciple, to encourage, to pass on those traits. You know, Virgil shares about his dad. I was primarily raised by my grandmother early on. Um, You know, another person that didn't graduate, you know, school or whatnot. But the gifts that she instilled in me, the wisdom that she instilled in me, the faith that she instilled in me, has propelled me and even those that come beyond me. Um, I'll tell you something else that she gave me, which is what you're talking about, this spirit of humility. She used to tell me, uh, if you're given a job for $5 an hour, you give them $7 an hour work. Uh, You're worth more than them than they are to you at that point. You, You have a diligence and a humility. But what that also taught me was when I'm preaching and, and, and not earning any income or when I'm given opportunities and not being taken care of, I'm OK because God has me. So when people now look and they say, man, how, you know, how you how do you get to such and such? I can point back like you did to man. There were years of free work. There were years of you know, work that people didn't see. There's years of behind the scenes that God says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So we must. Be diligent. Uh, I think Virgil had some passages that he wanted to share. Proverbs is replete with verses about being diligent, being a hard worker, not being a sluggard. That diligence helps us to take advantage of the opportunities that we were given. Jason, you didn't you didn't start writing at Ball State just off the top of your head. You know, you studied, you honed the gift that God gave you which when somebody gives you an opportunity, it's okay, now we're going to pay you. We don't have much. We just got five bucks. Hey, okay. But you, because of your writing level and your, your skill, man, somebody else looks at this and says, man, this guy's writing for you guys. Wow. We're going to give him an opportunity here. And that, that now has given you the place 
to where you can say to others, hey, come on, I, I've, I've been able to take advantage of this. So, you know, when I was listening to that conversation, I'm thinking along some similar to the lines you were talking about, which is it's not about what I can't do and it's not about what they won't give me. It's about what am I willing to be diligent to work for and to take advantage of. Hey, man, y'all, God has given me a gift to be an athlete. Great. But now I've got this contract for multi-millions that I can use to help others down the line versus complaining about the opportunity that I wasn't given. And so what I really took away from my conversation with those guys is, is they knew, I think they know there's opportunities, but they, mm -hmm. I think they think some of those opportunities are beneath former pro athletes. And, and again, it's like they want to uh, be head coaches. And yeah, they want to start here yeah. versus here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and, and I wanted to be, I was trying to convey to them and any young people and any professional athletes out there that are thinking about wanting to be a coach, because it's a great profession. It's a lucrative profession. I get it. But this is where and the whole Dion model that's not the path that, that that's the the path is oh, oh i'll go be a graduate assistant oh i'll go get coffee for the gm i'll do whatever just to get my foot in the door and then i'm going to impress them and and the reason i can say that confidently is because as my so let's i started writing a column in 1994 uh for the kansas city star and had instant success where i nationally known and i think within a year I'm on the cover of a magazine at that time that was popular in journalism, the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm on the cover with Tom Brokaw and I, I, maybe one or two other people. Within a year? Within a year. Wow. Of, and so I'm having incredible success. And everybody knows it. Like, I'm sitting in Kansas City, and everybody around the country is known. And so I can remember in 2001 or 2002, at, at some point, I wanted to start... I started doing the sports reporters, but I wanted to write for ESPN.com as well because I saw the internet coming. Mm -hmm. And the people running ESPN.com at the time didn't see my value. And, and so what ends up happening is a guy named Neil Scarborough offers me a job writing for ESPN.com while I'm still working at the Kansas City Star. And he, he apologizes, man, I'm sorry, man, we, we can only pay you, I think, $400 a column, which is, I was making far more money than that in a month that I said, you know what? I, I went into that situation like, I'm going to be the best sports writer. They got there. Bill Simmons is there, and he's very good, and I had a lot mm -hmm. of respect for him. Mm -hmm. and, and, but, but I'm like, I'm going to be the best they got. Let me accept this $400 an hour. And I, I don't know what they were paying Bill at the time, but maybe they were paying him $200,000 a year. I, I don't know or care. I just wanted to use their platform to build my brand. I didn't care about the money. And at that time, I, just let me get in where I fit in, and then I'll show them. And, and what unfortunately what happened is Neil Scarborough got fired within six months of me getting there, and then new, someone new came in, and they could see all the success I had, but they didn't want to pay me. And so I just took my act to AOL Sports at that time. Mm. I think they started paying me $2,500 a column. 
And, and then I went from that, and these are just part-time jobs. Yeah, yeah. And then I went from that to a part-time job with Fox Sports. I think I wrote two columns a week. This is my side hustle that paid me $600,000. So you go in and create your opportunity. You mean you weren't, you weren't walking around saying, what are they paying Bill before I no. come over? <laughs> no, no, no. And that's, I didn't care. But see, that's, that's, what, that's what I'm. my mindset has been throughout my life, which is I'm not concerned about what they've got. God has given me this lane, and even if it is this small, even if it is whatever, I'm going to make take advantage of this. Like you don't write down to, well, I'm, no, I'm going to keep doing me. And eventually that'll happen. That's where I'm saying I don't come into it, which this is the whole humble piece in Scripture. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. I don't walk into the building. Man, I, I ought to be. No. And I don't need to be what somebody else has. Uh, uh-uh. If this is the lane they have for me, I'm going to take advantage of this lane and before long, they're calling you now. They're calling you. Yeah. And so I, I just, anyway, I love those guys. I love them having come on the show. I hope no one's, uh, I hope they're not upset with the way we've discussed it. We try to do it very respectfully. I think we have done that. Uh, you know, can't wait to get them back on the one. I'm going to bring Merrill Hodge in here and we're going to talk about the concussion issue and, and, and those things. But to, anyway, uh, we'll cue up some harmony. And we'll see you tomorrow. How did we end up so divided? Stop fighting and stand tall. We used to be a nation, one united. Now we're headed for downfall God let your light shine down What we need more than anything Get to me